This is the Racing Shame Podcast, Season 5, Episode 1. Four co-hosts for 2021. Welcome to Season 5 of the Racing Shame Podcast. My name is DJ Chuang, one of the co-founders, and I'm thrilled that we're kicking off 2021 with uh, four co-hosts together, and we'll be carrying the conversation throughout the year of 2021 with a monthly episode and interspersed with some bonus episodes to really uh, dig into this conversation about erasing shame and how that affects our lives personally and collectively as a society. And I'm thrilled that this season we've brought together a panel talk format, which was uh, invented, inspired like 20 some years ago, I think it was on a TV show called The View. And mm. I figured uh, when we first, this was a dream, dream of mine for a number of years. And I figured if four women or five women could talk about current events and things of um, lesser consequence, you know, we, we as Asian Americans should be able to talk about uh, shame and things that hold us back from living more healthy and thriving lives. And so this season, we're going to have the opportunity to do that, talk about those hard things that we've never talked about because uh, shame is literally the silent killer for uh, many of us because it kills our dreams and it harms us in our relationships and our mental health and all kinds of things. Uh, I'll point you back to our website at erasingshame.com as well as any podcast channels you like, as well as our Facebook and YouTube channel, so that you can review and browse some of our past episodes uh, and past seasons where we addressed uh, and talked about things like mental health and family and issues and all kinds of things. But this, uh, at this first episode of season five, I want to introduce you to our co-host and let you know where we're coming from so that you can get to know us and um, we'll start this journey together, and we would love to have your interaction at a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, send a private message anonymously at our website on Facebook Messenger, and you can even leave a voicemail. So I'm going to go around the horn and have each of our co-hosts introduce themselves, describe a bit of how they have experienced shame in their life and um, what, what they hope to see happen in season five. And, um, you know, let you get to know them. So I'm going to go around and I'll go last. Uh, first up, I want to introduce you to Hannah Lee Sandoval. Thank you so much for joining us as a co-host in season five. Hi. Um, so I'm just introducing myself. Uh, <laughs> so I'm a second generation Korean American. Um, I'm learning some of these terms, cisgender, uh, married woman. <laughs> um, I live in LA, uh, born and raised here for the most part. Um, I am married to a Latino husband, thus the Sandoval, and then we have a little Corexarian baby. Um, not baby now, he's two, <laughs> but he's still our baby. Um, I'm currently a therapist in private practice, and uh, I was formerly a youth worker and a school counselor. I've been in ministry for a couple of years as well, working mostly with youth, um, children, and high school-aged youth. 
um, yeah. And so I'm, I'm really passionate about mental health. I think um, I I grew up in a very kind of um, white majority, evangelical, very, very conservative space, um, especially with school. I went to Christian schools growing up. And so um, I experienced shame from a pretty young age because there was a lot of like microaggressions or kind of this like silent, you know, underlying sense of like, anybody who's not blonde hair, blue eyed is less than somehow. And then there was also, you know, income gaps. We were solidly middle-class, but I think I was around a lot of more privileged people as well. So um, yeah, I think feeling shame or inadequate because I I was a person of color um, and also being a female, you know, I'm not encouraged to speak and I tend to be more extroverted. I've got ADHD. I'm an Enneagram two. I'm an ENFP really, really doesn't fit the typical mold of like silent, submissive East Asian female. (laughs) Um, so yeah, it, it was pretty uncomfortable growing up and learning to, I guess, get comfortable in my own skin. Um, and it's been a journey. I feel like I'm still in it. And now that I'm in an interracial marriage, I'm raising a biracial child. We still have to, in our own home and relationships, you know, have to navigate um, what shame feels like and looks like. And and then on the opposite end, what honor and respect and love look like and feel like um, in different contexts and cultures. So that's me. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you for joining us on season five. Uh, next up, George Xiong, who is up in the Midwest, and he's among Americans, so a very unique perspective. Thrilled to have you join us. Yeah, really excited to, to be here with you all. And um, I'm from the uh, great state of Minnesota. Um, oftentimes, uh, when I introduce myself, people ask how Hmong people found themselves in Minnesota, coming from a tropical um, environment to the frozen tundra, um, but um, a lot of that was due to sponsorships and, and um, churches up in Minnesota being the ones who sponsored a lot of the Hmong refugees. And so um, that's kind of how many Hmong people found themselves in Minnesota. Um, but more about myself, I too am uh, very passionate about mental health. Uh, I just graduated a few years ago with my master's in uh, mental health counseling, and I am now working in a private practice in Illinois here, um, serving as a psychotherapist and uh, predominantly working with uh, young adults and teenagers, um, helping them address their concerns around adjusting, especially in this new Uh, way of life that we have to live, Um, working through challenges of doing school from home and the anxieties and uncertainties of life moving forward. And so uh, that's what I do for my my daytime job. Um, Oftentimes it leads into the evenings as well. Um, But outside of that, uh, I am currently planting a a church here in Chicagoland called the Prodigal Network. Um, And we're really excited about that and uh, really just hoping to help people find what their mission is and helping them go out and and live according to that mission. So um, I am a second gen Hmong American. Uh, My parents came over in the 80s. Um, And so growing up, I was the youngest of our cousins in our generation. So um, I'm like 
a 1.5er because most of my cousins are 1.5ers. And so I grew up with that mentality. Um, but I'm also very much so a 2.0 um, uh, second gen immigrant uh, refugee. And so uh, that plays a lot in, in who I am, how I see the world. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm excited to uh, be on this panel with you all and uh, hopefully provide my perspective and um, kind of be a helpful voice in, in how to navigate what this looks like for even other Southeast Asian refugee groups or um, just Southeast Asians in, in general. Thank you, George. Welcome aboard. And our fourth co-host is Leah Abraham. Thrilled to have her on board with us. She is a prolific writer or editor anyways, but a great voice um, online uh, through her writing and journalism background. And I'll let her introduce herself. Hey. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Leah Abraham. Um, I am currently joining from Roanoke, Virginia, um, land of the Totello people. Um, but my story starts in Houston, Texas. That's where I was born. Um, and when I was three years old, my family decided to move back to India, which is where we're all originally from. Because my it was my I have an older brother and me, and they want my parents wanted us to grow knowing our culture, our language, and our people. And so we moved. And then at age thirteen, we moved back to the states. Um, this time back to Portland, Oregon. Um, so I was a teenager then. They wanted my brother wanted to study music, and there were just better opportunities in the states. So I just sort of got dragged along. Um, but that's sort of where my second half of my childhood, like teenage years on, was in Portland, Oregon. Um, went into journalism for a bit right after college. And right now I work at a university um, doing in their development office and their alumni relations office. Um, I'm also editor in chief of She Loves Magazine. Um, I moved to Virginia from Portland about a year and a half ago after getting married. Um, and that geography and that sort of pilgrimage from the United States to India to the Pacific Northwest of the States and now to the South of the States has very much informed my um, ever-changing identity and understanding who am I, what, what does it mean to be, what does it mean to call this space home, um, just the cultural identity stuff that happens because I still a huge part of me will always be an immigrant because um, I all my memories start in India and then uprooting that and coming moving across the world with not only like the hormonal and emotional stuff that happens in a teenager but also trying to figure out the cultural shift and um, learning to change my accent and being really ashamed of like what if people will be like, oh, she's that smelly, weird Indian kid. And how do I navigate that? And, um, and then figuring out what does it mean to be a citizen of this country? And, um, and then moving to the South where it's a whole nother ball game. And this was my first time experience in the South in this country. And yeah, so there's a lot of shame, a lot of cultural identity and a lot of, um, questions that I've been struggling with. And so normally I like to give people a snapshot of that. Um, but as, uh, as a Daisy woman, I'm, Hannah, I'm also an Enneagram too. Right. And so I think hey, she, me too. 
<laughs> me too. No oh way. Three? Three. Oh. <laughs> Hannah? I'm a wing yeah, three. <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny. Oh my gosh. Um, wow. Yeah. You know, you know, we have an Achilles heel. We love to give. Yeah. And help. It also makes sense why shame is a huge topic for all of us and how we hold mm. space in our relationship with it. It's very core to our childhood wounds, it feels like. <laughs> um, but it's intersectional, right? Like, it's not only the cultural identity, but my gender and my place in society, my place in my cultural community, my Indian community. And so, yeah, I'm really excited to dig deeper with you guys in these topics and figure smash the stigma and yeah yeah thank you leah and then i myself i'm chinese american came to the u.s when i was eight years old and that was many many moons ago uh, i'm now 54 years old so i'm the oldest person on this panel but i was inspired to start erasing shame almost 10 years ago so those of you that are geeky and can check the internet uh, domain registration the domain was registered in 2012 and it wasn't until 2018 when the stars aligned and I was able to find a co-host, um, Eunice Lee Hua, to launch this podcast with me. And we want it to be a conversational, not a lecture. And we also wanted to talk about shame that would be in a healthy manner that wasn't so uh, psychological and, and uh, a lot of medical jargon. And so we wanted to make mental health and healthy living accessible to normal everyday people. And um, the hope was that in sharing stories and having conversations about things that we uh, rarely ever hear about amongst Asian Americans that would uh, give courage and help people to know that they're not alone. And it's okay to see a therapist. It's, a, um, it's okay to struggle and that um, there's others who would love to help if they would know what you're struggling with. But because of shame, we hide all of that. And we hide all of that from everybody, from our family to our friends. And we carry a burden unnecessarily. And that's my own story too, that I carried a lot of my uh, feelings. They were pressed. And I heard a good chat on Clubhouse the other day that when we press our feelings and keep it inside, it becomes depressed. And so for uh, years, in, well into my 30s, I've dealt with depression, undiagnosed, and then it was diagnosed after I had a very stressful situation, but not only depression, I have a mood disorder called bipolar. And you can, um, I'll add a link in the show notes where you can hear the longer version of my story. But I'm married now 25 years, have a 23-year-old son, been working at home for seven years, not just seven months, <laughs> like many of you during this COVID season. And just very grateful to be alive and to have the opportunity to talk about healthy living, not just mental health, but um, in every aspect of life. And that's kind of the space that we've been able to create together. And again, we'll get to create um, and explore new spaces in this conversation about how do we live well, um, not just for our self-care, but to care for our neighbors. And as we've gotten to, we've started, we've just started getting to know each other as co-hosts and we'll do that along the way um, over the course of this year. 
and uh, we're we're hopeful to really advance this conversation so that we can be erasing shame um, that holds all of us back uh, unnecessarily because um, when we bring things into light, it gives us freedom. And we um, we realized after actually after season one of erasing shame, we realized we're never running out of things to talk about because shame is not. Uh, just an issue. It's part of the human condition. It's not just an Asian American thing. It's a human thing. It's not something that we erase permanently, but when it shows up, we want to find good ways to um, process that because mm-hmm. it's unhealthy to keep it bottled up. So um, that's why we're here. Uh, thank you, Hannah, George, and Leah for joining uh, me and joining our audience in this ongoing conversation. And to wrap up um, this first half of a two-part uh, um, two-part series uh, as we start season five, I uh, just want to get a little bit of um, nuance and the um, terrain of what shame looks like in different Asian and Asian American cultures. So in the Chinese culture, um, of which my immediate um, family growing up in, uh, I think shame shame was always the uh, reinforcing barrier for how we were to behave. Mm. And so the message that was reinforced to me is don't cause shame to the family, don't shame the family name, and don't lose face with your behaviors. Mm. And so mm-hmm. uh, the way that I respond to that as an Enneagram 2 and a strong feeler. Even though I'm an engineer by training, I had this whole other side that was bottled up and underdeveloped until my 40s and 50s, uh, putting words to my feelings and understanding how to process them. Um, um, yeah, that, that shame really limited me to just good behavior. But I had all this energy pent up. I didn't know how to process it. And then eventually it really um, caused um, harm that I needed help to get well with. And um, so that's just a quick snapshot of what it looked like in Chinese, in my Chinese family and how I experienced shame growing up. Uh, Who'd like to go next? We don't have to go in order. You know, this is like a lively discussion and people are listening. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I wanted to, to do the chivalrous thing and and say ladies first, but, um, I, I, I can share just because I think, um, there's a, there's a space in which, uh, the Hmong culture kind of shares some of those experiences. Um, I think especially, when it comes to familial ties and um, I think there's just this, um, what, what we, we call it is face, right? That's, that's the translation of it um, and, and not wanting to lose face. And so um, for, for the Hmong culture, at least in, in our family and the communities that I've been a part of, oftentimes everything you do is reflected onto your parents. Um, and, and whether they're achievements or whether they're failures, everything falls back onto your parents. And so there's this strong um, honoring of your parents in which you know, every decision you make um, then tells the community uh, how good of parents your parents are. 
Um, and so my parents always came out with uh, these, you know, concerns of, hey, you're, you know, essentially representing me as you step into the world. Um, so behave in a way that would bring me face, right? Or, or behave in a way that wouldn't cause me to lose face. Um, and, and so that was uh, definitely difficult to understand as a child growing up. Um, and so when, uh, you know, you did make mistakes, um, you know, and, and your parents then were frustrated with you, you were trying to wrestle through all that emotional turmoil of, I had no clue what I was doing. And, uh, you know, I, I don't even understand how this shame culture works or, you know, the, what the repercussions are. Um, but I think um, the way that it shaped me, uh, you know, both negatively and positively is I'm more aware of how my behaviors, how my actions, my words affect the people around me. Um, and, and have impact on the people around me. And so for better or worse, that, that sometimes keeps me hesitant in the ways in which I, I speak, the, the actions that I take, um, because I don't want to bring shame upon myself or my, my parents or my family. But at the same time, I'm also able to put on a filter um, and know when it's appropriate to put up a Facebook post and say something that would uh, ruffle some feathers or be able to keep that to myself in in hope of you know not being a negative impact on the rest of the community um and so i think that's something that's very um interesting in my my development around shame i guess i'll share i was thinking um i really resonate a lot with what dj and george are talking about um I I was thinking that um, something that was clarifying, and I don't remember if it was from Brene Brown or like a sermon I heard, um, but sh kind of the differentiation between shame and guilt, because I didn't have that differentiation growing up. And so when I was older and studying about shame and learning about it, it was like shame is asking the question, what's wrong with me? Um, whereas guilt is really looking at like, what, what's wrong with what I did, right? It's not really not having to do with identity. But I think growing up in a very um, strict, uh, conservative, um, we had you know undiagnosed, untreated mental health issues in our family and addiction and certain kinds of you know um, abuse happening. So I, I really couldn't differentiate um, shame and guilt out of my general sense of identity and being. Um, I, I I don't, I can't speak to other people's, other Koreans' experience, but, you know, I, I was aware that one of my parents was dealing with a lot of stuff. And so we would um, be in very public spaces. And I always knew there was a possibility of being very, very embarrassed to be with my family if somebody lost control. So I experienced shame of like, you know, someone else's behavior embarrassing all of us. And because it's my parent, it was like, well, are they right? And are they making sense or is the rest of the world crazy <laughs> or is the, rest of the mm. world more normal? And we're the ones that have the issue. I, it wasn't clear um, for a long time. Um, yeah. So I think learning to differentiate my identity and, and become, you know, um, this person who is comfortable in my own skin, whatever that looked like. Um, and then 
yeah, realizing like everyone kind of experiences shame differently, right? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, that that said, I, I resonate so much with you know what you guys already shared. Um, there was a very big decision I made in my early twenties um, that I still regret to this day, like the worst thing of my life, basically. That it was all about shame and honor for my family, and basically mm-hmm. the thought I you know the the thing I told myself was um, even if I go to hell for this. I cannot shame my family and burden my family with this wow. thing. You know? um, and it wasn't a decision I wanted to make. It was like, a, I don't have a choice because I love my family so much. I don't mm. want to burden them with the consequences of if I don't make the other choice. Right. So yeah, it's been a big dynamic. And even in my clinical work, um, I work with a lot of Asian Americans. We're constantly dealing with shame. And um, besides talking about it openly and, you know, getting empowered by um, being loved and accepted, right. As we talk about mm-hmm. this that causes shame, I think a big thing has also been drawing boundaries. Right. And then learning to assert ourselves and to speak it um, and then to, do whatever we need to do to say like that thing causing me shame. I, I don't want to feel that way anymore. <laughs> so let me do what I have to, that maybe is counterintuitive or countercultural to address it. So I don't know if I've spoken so much to the Korean American experience, but that's just been mine as a second generation Korean American. Wow. Yeah. That thing about differentiating shame and guilt I I did not understand what shame was. Like even I grew up in a church world with that language was thrown around a lot, but not understanding that. Um, you, uh, I know DJ, you know this, but the, have you guys listened to the Liturgist podcast episode on shame? I um, did. Just yeah, phenomenal. I, so I was there during the live recording. I was oh, like, I'm so jealous. Mm-hmm. I was living in Seattle, so that that's where it was recorded, and it was the first time where I had heard the difference between shame and guilt, and to understand that shame was a relational thing, right? Shame is for happens in relationship with someone, and it is this idea of like, or it is what you hear the narrative is that why am I not good enough or why am I not worthy? And hearing those Mm. words, I lost it. It was like a church of 900 and I was in the middle and I was just like full snot everything because it was the first time I realized I was like, well, crap, this is like my entire life. And like I could Mm. from childhood, all these memories and all these there were just like things that started to click and I was understanding like, well, crap, this makes a lot of sense. And so sh- the word shame and understanding that um, just the meaning of it unlocked a lot of how I see and processed old um, just memories and just how, and how shame festers in silence. Um, mm-hmm. Right. And so I, ever yes. since that, like I, yeah, I, I would do small things like anytime I, like sense it come up, I like text a friend immediately and is like, I need you to know that I did this and I don't feel great about myself. And wow. anyway, so you like wow. I completely relate to you. Um that I think that that understanding difference between guilt and shame is a really powerful process. I think it's a journey. Um it has been mm-hmm. for me. And it's been interesting as an Indian woman and I want to be careful of because I don't think 
I want to be careful not to reduce all of this into like, this is the Indian experience because it's not, it's in the Indian experience mm -hmm. varies so differently um, based on where you're from. There are so many different languages and castes yeah, and, it, and It's the most populous ethnicity anytime yeah. now. It it feels sometimes mm -hmm. it feels like you're going country to country when you go state to state in India because there's yeah. different language, food, but also just how the communities work and all of that is a bit different. But hmm. so just to give context, I come from the state of Kerala, which is like it's a small state on um, on the peninsula. So I'm Malayali, um, and I think and my family is Christian, and so that's also fairly part of my cultural identity um, and the community's identity and the messages about shame is very um i think it's important to pinpoint that um but i remember growing up so i grew up with my grandparents i remember growing up my grandma would say the story with so much pride so she would say when her so when my aunt um she'd be very upset because in gatherings my grandma would never like say anything to like like yeah my daughter did this and i'm so proud of her and she'd be really upset and she'd be like mom, why aren't you saying anything about me when other parents are doing that? And she's like, it is other parents should be saying things about you, not me. Mm. As a boy, like you need to be good enough that other people are like, wow, you have such an amazing daughter instead of the other way around. And for that, that my, for my grandma, that was a sense of pride, right? Like, like this is how I'm raising my kids. And those messages somehow like, I'm, and so that's sort of the environment I grew up in where hearing, like, I didn't hear I'm proud of you very often, um, but they were very quick to say I'm disappointed, right? Mm -hmm. And so shame was very easily, yeah, it felt, it was quick. And it's, it's the very similar message that I heard even growing up throughout um, with, my parents are a bit unusual in some aspects um, to <laughs> regular Daisy standards where um, my parents were actually okay with that. My brother and I didn't pursue the um, engineer, doctor, lawyer route, um, mostly because they knew we sucked at all three of those. <laughs> <laughs> my brother's a musician and I'm a writer and... Um, but they were, but I will always see my parents struggle with that when they're in community, right? They can see like when other kids are doing well. Um, and so, and they're making more money and they're well off much quicker out, out, right after college. And I see my parents struggle. I was like, well, did we do the right thing of letting our kids pick their um, vocations or should we have done something differently? Mm. Um but then when they're alone, they're like, yeah, nah, forget the traditional path. And so it's interesting just generationally seeing my grandparents deal with shame, seeing my parents deal with shame, and then my brother and I having to figure out, well, we are like immigrants, but also American. And so how do we navigate that? And what is the legacy we want to pass down to our kids? And so, yeah, it's a very complicated and fascinating um, <laughs> A conversation of shame evolves, which is fascinating mm -hmm. for the generations yeah. for us. Yeah, because mm -hmm. we haven't talked about it for generations. Mm -hmm. uh, there's so much to unpack and <laughs> untangle mm -hmm. and to heal from. Mm -hmm. and so there's um, a lot of pain and shame that's even passed down generationally. 
some of my extended family in Fujian. So my dad's from Fujian province, the uh, province directly across from Taiwan in mainland China. And our extended family actually has a number that are very well-to-do in Macau and Singapore. And he did the research for the whole family tree and published these two hardbound volumes of oh, wow. our family tree, 21 generations out of this village in mm. Fujian, all the Chuangs. Oh. And looking back in our family tree, I think three or four generations back, I was actually um, part of the second house. And so being translated, the second house was the second wife of somebody in the Chuang family. Mm -hmm. So right there in my family tree, we've got that kind of um, uh, family dysfunction, if I can say it that way, to have multiple wives. It's not particularly mm -hmm. a healthy thing. And so, um, you know, that, that ripples down. And um, yeah, and the other thing I'll mention here as we... Um, um, to uh, wrap up the introduction part, the um, someone did a research that in the Chinese language, there's 133 synonyms for the word shame. Good Lord. Wow. Yeah. And I'll add a link in the show notes. So it's kind of like that um, story people share about how there's 75 words for snow in mm -hmm, the Eskimo mm -hmm. language. Mm -hmm. So shame is so much of the Chinese culture and yeah. just weaves into every part, not just uh, uh, family life, but social life and community and work and identity. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot to talk about. We've got a whole year to do it and we'll weave mm -hmm. that in with how shame affects um, all kinds of aspects of our lives. So one, one of the topics that we wanna um, address uh, because it's timely and shame affects us in real time that a lot has happened in this month of January with a change in the presidential uh, administration mm -hmm. with the insurrection at Capitol Hill with the start of 2021. And it would be timely to spend some time talking about that to acknowledge it and to kind of set up, hey, in the ne next episode, we'll drill down a bit more because these are developing uh, situations and mm -hmm. we want to be timely in our conversation. And that concludes episode one of Erasing Shame. Episode number one, please come back next week as we continue our conversation, the four co-hosts react to the Capitol Hill events in Washington, D.C. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Erasion Shame podcast. Check out our website at erasionshame.com. We would love to hear your comments and questions. Please subscribe on any podcast app like Apple, Google, Spotify, or on Facebook and YouTube. And please add a rating, a review, and a share so more people can experience the freedom and healing that comes from erasing shame.